0: There are generally two schools of thought when it comes to yard sales, and most of us have either hosted a yard sale or we've shopped at a yard sale, and the best way to illustrate those two schools of thought is to describe what happens at our house when we have a yard sale. Every year, Emily and her friends host a yard sale at our house, and they work really hard at it. They are just so meticulous. They know where each item came from, that this pair of baby socks came from, that Aunt Mildred, and was worn by this child during this season of their lives. And they know how much everything is worth. And they stay up late the night before, and they lovingly and painstakingly price each individual item. And then the next morning, they're ready to turn a profit. And that's the first school of thought, which says all of this stuff has value. And then there's the second school of thought. Let me tell you what I do during a yard sale. I help set up, I help tear down, I carry stuff. But when we're open for business, I stand out there and I look for the guy who pulls up in an empty pickup truck. And he just became my new best friend. And so when he gets out of his truck, I approach him and I say, Hey, buddy, everything on this table for 20 bucks. And And he says, Really? You'll give me everything on this table for 20 bucks? And I say, No. I'm telling you, I'll pay you $20. To haul everything on this table out of my driveway. And that's the second school of thought, which says, let's just get rid of this stuff. Well, all this got me to thinking, a yard sale forces us to place value on material items. But what about our spiritual lives? What if our spiritual lives were represented in yard sale terms? What would be the things that we would value really highly? Would it be weekly worship? Maybe small group? And then what things would we go ahead and place on the yard sale table because we don't really use them that much anyway? Would it be prayer? Would it be Bible study? Evangelism? How much value would you place on the various spiritual activities in your life? Well, our passage today from the book of James, chapter 5, deals with one of those undervalued spiritual activities, which is prayer. And I think prayer is an undervalued part of our spiritual lives, primarily because sometimes it's hard for Christians to draw a cause and effect line from what we pray for to actual outcomes. And in this passage that we're going to read, there are clear instructions on prayer. But are the spiritual prescriptions that we find in James valued enough in our lives that we actually obey these instructions? Or do they seem maybe a little bit outdated to us? Have they already been placed on the yard sale table of our spiritual lives? Well, let's read what James says in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. He says, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him, And anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man, of a righteous woman, is powerful and effective. Well, in this passage, James describes for us three conditions. The first is trouble, the second is happiness, and the third is sickness. And we can deal with a condition of happiness fairly quickly. Not too many people are wrestling with that problem. I'm just so happy and I don't know what to do. Well, if that is what your problem is, James says, hey, if you're happy, give your praise to God. Praise him, thank him. And that's a part of our spiritual discipline as well, is to approach God with a grateful heart and to worship him. But the other two conditions, being in trouble and being sick, are where we'll spend the bulk of our time today. And the remedy for both is prayer. And we're going to examine the prayer of faith that James commands that will yield the result of deliverance for those who are in trouble and the result of healing for those who are sick. Now, I realize that the topic of healing is a sensitive subject it's likely that most of you have developed an opinion of healing at some point in your Christian walk. For some, you've been taught that healing and miracles, they just no longer happen. They once did, but they don't happen anymore. Others of you may have been turned off by the practices and failings within the charismatic movement, and as such, the pendulum of belief in the supernatural has swung really far in one direction, where we've come to either not believe in the power of God, or we've come to fear the power of God. But I submit to you that what we really need to fear is the lack of his power in our lives. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, and we do a lot of talking, but it's not a matter of talk, but of power. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is still in the full-time business of saving and healing and delivering. And he does this work by the power of his Holy Spirit through the lives of Christians, just like you and me, and he is still just as much a miracle maker today as he was when he walked this earth. Nothing has happened to him, but something has happened to us. Something has happened to you and me. Most of us want to believe that God still heals, just as James describes in this passage, but then We have something called an experience. Let me tell you about one of mine. When I was 19 years old, I was on fire for the Lord. I was bold in sharing my faith. And I also, for some reason, I just longed to see people healed. I wanted to pray for people to be healed. And at the time, we had a family friend, his name was David, who had been diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease that confined him to a wheelchair. And so I called him that summer after my freshman year of college, and I asked to meet with him, and he said, sure. So I fasted, I went to his office downtown where he worked, I read some scripture to him, I prayed for him, and then I offered my hand to help him stand and walk, fully expecting him to get out of his wheelchair and to be healed. I really believed that the Lord was going to do a healing that day. But David was not able to fully stand up from his wheelchair, and he collapsed back down into it. And I was devastated. I was embarrassed. I was disappointed. And the enemy started to work on me. And for quite some time, I couldn't even talk about that incident because the feelings of failure and disappointment would just kind of overwhelm me. I felt foolish. I honestly felt like I had stuck my neck out for God and was left hanging. And I've been disappointed in praying for healing since then as well. But it doesn't worry me that we in the body of Christ could end up feeling embarrassed or foolish after taking the risk of praying a prayer of faith, what worries me is that we would never feel that way because we never even tried. Here's the deal. Sometimes when we take risks for God, we land in a place of disappointment. It happens that our life experiences sometimes do not match what the Bible promises. And this is where the rubber meets the road in this passage in James. If you've done what James says to do, and you had church leaders anoint you with oil and pray over you when you were sick, and you weren't healed, what did you conclude? Or maybe you were the one praying for healing, and nothing happened. Is the word of God no longer relevant? Is God no longer in the healing and miracles business? Does he just not want to do it? Friends, understand that God is good, He keeps his promises, his word is true, and he does not change. But there are other things going on. Some of it is unseen, things that are happening in the spiritual realm that we neither see nor fully understand. But I believe that the two biggest barriers to answered prayer for healing based on this passage in James are number one, unbelief, and number two, unrepentance. And we'll start with unbelief. If you have your Bible still open to James chapter 5, let's break down these verses in verses 14 and 15 in terms of who does what, who is supposed to do what. First, when you're sick, it is your responsibility to let church leaders know, to call the elders of the church. Some of you may have never heard that before, but that is what the Bible teaches as a response to illness. Second, Church leaders then carry the responsibility to anoint you with oil and to pray a prayer of faith. That's their part. Third, God's part is to do the healing and to make you well. Incidentally, church leaders are not the only ones who can pray for the sick. We are all invited to pray for the sick. And God could use any one of us in a healing. But to me, the clincher in these verses is that the prayer has to be a prayer of Offered in faith. And you know what I think the biggest obstacle is to people praying a prayer of faith? I think it's that people are are uncertain or unconvinced about whether or not it's even God's will to heal. When we consider God's will, a lot of people have uncertainty about what God's will is. But I, I don't want you to think of God's will as this mysterious, unknowable system that runs in the background of the universe. In the background of life. Think of it instead simply as what God wants. Here's the equation. God's will equals what God wants. And God is very clear about a lot of things in Scripture that he wants and that he doesn't want. Additionally, don't make the mistake of thinking that just because something happens or just because something happened in the past, well, it happened. That must have been God's will. I love this quote from Pastor Bill Johnson who says, It is foolish to assume that if something is God's will, it will automatically be done. That misconception is at the heart of powerless praying. I've heard people say, Well, God gave me cancer because I'm kind of hard-headed and he must want to teach me something. But I don't believe that God sends us illness. I believe that just as God loves to save the soul from sin, He loves to heal the body from sickness. Friends, we need a shift in our perspective on sickness and healing as it relates to the goodness of God. During the time that Jesus walked the earth, it was widely understood that the origin of sickness was from the devil. But today, a large part of the body of Christ believes that God sends us sickness. But if that's the case, if God sends us sickness to make us better people, then we probably shouldn't go to doctors because that's interfering with his plan. So we have to be careful about assigning evil to God. So I'm going to overstate it this way. Assigning God as the cause of origin or the origin of sin or sickness borderlines on blasphemy. We cannot assign that which is evil to God. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't redeem pain and illness and suffering. He does. In fact, He's quite good at it. But that doesn't mean that He's the originator of that pain and illness. But the point is this. As Christ followers, we don't have to just take it. We have access to power when it comes to influencing the circumstances surrounding illness. Friends, I've arrived at a point... And I didn't always used to be here, but I've arrived at a point in my walk with the Lord that I believe that it is God's will to heal. Does it always happen that people get healed? Nope. But there are a lot of things that are God's will that don't happen. Things that he wants, but that he doesn't get. He doesn't want children to be abused. He doesn't want people to succumb to addictions. He doesn't want people to die without Christ, but all of these things happen. He wants people to be healed, but sometimes that doesn't happen. But that's why Jesus instructs us to pray in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, Lord, make this world more like that one. Make earth more like heaven. In heaven, God, you get what you want. In heaven, there are no infections, no cancer, no injuries, no chronic pain, no addictions, no sickness. So, Lord, make earth like heaven. We stand with you, Father, as we pray your will be done. Have your way here on earth just as you have your way in heaven. If you're still wondering if it's God's will to heal, consider that God is gave us his only son who bore all of our sin and all of our sickness on the cross. And the word says, by his stripes we are healed. What more does God have to do to convince us that that he wants to save us, that he delights in healing us, that he longs to set us free from the things that bind us? He gave up the life of his very son to do that. So when I pray for the sick, I don't say, Lord, if it's your will to heal them. Because I'm firmly convinced that he wants to do it. And that changes the way that I pray for people. So I pray, I ask the Holy Spirit to come and to touch that person's body and to heal them. And as a small act of faith, and it only takes a mustard seed's worth of faith, I ask them to test their ailment as just after the prayer. And people are sometimes surprised by this but I think it's a way of honoring the Lord by praying with expectation that he's actually going to do something even in that moment. So I ask, is your pain still there? And sometimes it's gone completely. Sometimes there's no change at all. Sometimes it's gone by 50 percent. But if there's a sense that he's doing something, that he's there and he's healing, then I ask him to keep doing it and to complete it. Friends, don't get discouraged if you pray for someone to be healed and it didn't happen the first time. It's okay. Just don't give up. Do you give up praying for the salvation of someone if they don't give their lives to Christ immediately? Pray again. Press into the Lord. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, even when it appears foolish to do so. I keep a uh, healing journal here with the names of people that I've prayed for, the date, and then what happened. And some of them have been touched by God and they've received a healing, some have improved. And some haven't, and I don't know why. I wish I had a golden key that unlocked healing for everyone, because I would use it. I would. But since I don't, what I'm going to do is not give up. I'm going to continue to believe the Word of God that we read in this passage in James and believe God for healing for anyone and everyone who asks. Here's the question. What will we allow to define reality the truth of scripture or our own experience or lack of experience. There was a lady who went on a short term mission trip to Brazil to minister to the sick and to pray for them. And she went with a team that conducted some healing gatherings. And while she was there, she met a blind man. And he was blind because acid had been spilled in his eyes in childhood. And so where uh, there should have been pupil and cornea, there was just white scar tissue. And she felt compelled to pray for him. And so she did. And nothing happened. She continued to pray, believing God was going to give him his sight. Nothing happened. She prayed for him for five hours. She laid hands on his eyes and prayed for God to heal him and give him his sight. Still nothing. The next day, her team boarded a plane and headed back to the U.S., Three days later, the pastor of a church in Brazil made a phone call to the ministry leader who took that team to Brazil, and he reported that an amazing miracle had taken place whereby a man who had been blind since having acid spilled in his eyes as a child had been healed and could now see. The Lord had done a creative miracle in giving him his sight. Let me ask you this. How do you think that lady felt when she boarded that plane? Discouraged? Disappointed? Maybe even embarrassed? I don't know. And and why did the healing come three days later and not while she was praying for that man? I don't know. But this much I know. She did not allow reality to be defined by what she was experiencing during those five hours of prayer because she didn't experience anything. She based her reality on the truth of God's word, which says that he's a healer. And it's incumbent upon us to obey God's word and to pray in faith and then trust God for the timing of the healing. In the parable of the talents, where one servant is given ten talents, one's given five, one is given one, the harshest words are reserved for the servant who took his one talent and he did nothing with it. He buried it. And he's called a wicked, lazy servant. And maybe we can understand why he's called lazy, because he didn't do anything. He just took it and he buried it in the ground. But why is he called wicked? Doesn't that seem a little bit harsh, a little over the top? Well, I think Jesus says this because he gives us very stern warning. and He says, don't just play it safe with the power that I've entrusted to you as my followers use it. And there's no exercising of faith without some element of risk. Just like those who multiplied their talents, they had to take a little bit of risk with it. And all it takes is a small amount of faith. He's looking for risk takers. And from this parable, we also see that increase comes with usage. Use it a little bit. So use even a small amount of faith. Take a risk with it and see if it doesn't grow and multiply. But one thing we cannot do is remain in a place of unbelief, because unbelief is a barrier to prayer. Not just for healing prayer, but for everything that we pray for. The second barrier to healing and to answered prayer is unrepentance. From James 5.16, we see that there is a parallel between sin in the soul and sickness in the body. Just as sickness makes our bodies feel lousy, Sin makes our soul feel lousy. And Jesus also underscores this parallel when he heals the paralytic. And some are asking him what he's doing. And he says, well, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the man was healed. Now, because there is a parallel here, Don't take that to mean cause and effect, because I don't believe that every sickness comes from a particular sin. The last thing a sick person needs is guilt and shame on top of their pain and suffering, because at the heart of healing ministry is not guilt, it's love. But we've had another pendulum swing in the church. We've gone so far to separate a person's physical ailment from sin, that we're not practicing what the Bible clearly instructs us in this passage in James on confession. Just as your body needs to get rid of that infection, your soul needs to get rid of the contamination of sin. That's why James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Under the overall umbrella of unrepentance, I believe that the biggest piece of that and the biggest barrier to healing and other prayer breakthroughs is unforgiveness. We tend to move along in life as though everything's fine when eating away at us on the inside is anger and bitterness. We're very polite on the outside but on the inside the toxin of unforgiveness keeps poisoning the soul and sustaining the sickness of the body. In fact, many people testify to receiving a healing of their physical body upon actively forgiving someone. And when the poison of that unforgiveness or unrepentant sin was released and extracted, both the soul and the body recovered very quickly. Friends, the Lord knows what he's talking about in his word. He knows what's good for us. So if you're harboring a hidden sin or an unforgiving heart, confess it, get it out and be healed. James says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And I think it's safe to assume that the converse of this verse is also true, that the prayer of an unrighteous man or woman is anemic and ineffective. And what he's saying here is that holiness in the body of Christ matters. Righteousness matters. Purity matters. Matters when it comes to effectiveness in spiritual power in prayer, holiness and purity, and time spent with God also matters. There's a story found in Mark chapter nine where Jesus' disciples try to cast out an evil spirit from a demon-possessed boy, but they couldn't do it. So Jesus casts out the demon, and later his disciples ask him they say why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replies, well, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus does neither of those things in that passage. He doesn't do it. He doesn't tell the Father, hey, uh, I need a few days. Could you come back next week? I need a few days to fast and pray to prepare myself. He just commands the demon to leave, and you know how he was able to do this? It's because Jesus had already built up a reservoir of banked time with the Father in prayer and fasting. So he was able to operate from the overflow of that in his life. He was living a holy and righteous life. So when the moment of crisis came, he was ready and could deliver the power. But what about us? How can we be ready if we're not spending time with God in prayer? How can we exercise spiritual power if we are not living righteous lives? How can we expect healing and deliverance if we're not in the practice of confessing sin, which we've clearly been told to do in this passage? This book of James is so practical. It tells us what to do. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to believe that this is actually how it works. And it's hard to obey because it's uncomfortable to pray a prayer of faith, a risky prayer. And it's uncomfortable to confess our sin. Beloved, it's time for a cleansing and purification within the family of God. Not for the sake of being self-righteous, but so that we can be healed and set free and move on toward bigger and better kingdom things. And some of you are stuck. But God does not want you to remain in a place of being stuck, whether you're stuck with a nagging physical ailment or a perpetual hardness of heart from unconfessed sin or hidden sin. Pretending that all is well when it is not well, you know what? That has no positive effect either on the body or the soul. In fact, listen to the words of King David who says this in Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. As we close, I want to mention one other benefit to praying in faith for healing, and that is its evangelistic potential. Now, this isn't in the passage in James, but it was certainly seen in Jesus' ministry as he used healing as a way to draw people to God. We tend to think of evangelism as a presentation. We think people are they're short on knowledge. So we need to inform them. We need to educate them. Well, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. And I think that a touch from God is worth a thousand gospel presentations. Because it bypasses the need for a lot of words and a lot of explanation. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in sound doctrine. And I believe in presenting the gospel. In fact, I've written gospel presentations myself. But a healing from God is a powerful demonstration of God's love for a person, whether that's a believer or an unbeliever. So how about you? Do you want to experience God in greater measure? Are you willing to take a small risk? Would you offer to pray for someone who is noticeably sick or injured? and just outright ask God to heal them? Emily and I have been on a journey for a couple of years now, pressing more and more into the Lord, asking him to heal people. In fact, at this time last year, I was in the middle of a 40-day fast, just seeking the Lord to learn more and to pray for healing for the sick. And we believe that it's an act of love to own a person's physical pain and to take it to the Father for them so we pray for people to be healed because we want to see Jesus receive the glory for it. And there are others here today who are hungry for the same thing. And I believe that the eyes of the Holy Spirit are roving through this place today looking for people who will trust him, who will believe God's word that we read together in this passage of James, who will take risks for him and even be willing to look foolish in doing so and some of you resonate with what I'm saying because you know deep down in your spirit that there is more to this life in Christ than just the attainment of knowledge there is an experience of God to be had and maybe you're weary of praying Lord give the doctors wisdom or guide the hands of the surgeon you know what there's nothing wrong with those prayers my dad is a doctor My mom's a nurse, and my wife is a physical therapist. I believe in medical care, and I believe in praying for medical professionals. But there is a difference between praying, Lord, give the doctor's wisdom, and saying, Holy Spirit, would you come now and touch her back and take the pain away and heal it in Jesus' name? And the difference between those two prayers is just a little bit a mustard seed's worth of risk, what the Bible calls a prayer offered in faith. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up.